if you want fees, appellate fees, and you forgot to get them in the final judgment, or if you want a further temporary order, just file it, even if they don't appeal. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, Attorney Holly Draper. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Brad Lamore just as our guest on the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Brad is a partner at Orsinger, Nelson, Downey & Anderson in Dallas. He's been practicing family law since 1996 and is board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Brad is known for his experience and excellence in complex litigation involving interpretations of law and cases regarding jurisdictional disputes. With a long track record in complicated, sophisticated cases, he handles all types of family litigation matters, including divorce, complex property division, high net worth cases, business valuation issues, division of estates, jurisdiction challenges, interstate and international custody disputes, and marital agreement litigation. He also drafts marital agreements, including premarital, postmarital, and partition agreements. Brad is also one of the few family appellate lawyers in Texas. During his nearly two decades of practice, he's achieved success in dozens of cases in Texas appeals courts and the Texas Supreme Court, as well as the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. He's handled appeals involving all areas of family law, including interstate and international custody, property division, award of property, habeas corpus, grandparent versus parent rights, bill of review, post-divorce disputes, alimony disputes, parentage issues, and father's rights. And his appellate work is how I became connected with Brad. I, uh, he worked with me on the CJC case, and it was definitely the best decision I made to pick up the phone one day, and, or I guess I reached out to you on Facebook, and then picked up the phone and talked to you, and one thing led to another, and I'm so glad that I connected with you, learned so much about appellate law, and I think uh, together we made a great team on CJC, so thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Holly. It's my pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm, I concur with what you said. I, I very much enjoy working with you. I've taught you as an appellate lawyer as well, so thank you for having me here. So why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about your background? So I was licensed to practice in Texas in 1996, way back last century. Uh, I was board certified in family law in 2001 hard to believe, uh, about 20 years this year. I currently work at Orsinger Nelson Downing Anderson. I've been here since 2006. It's a full-service boutique family law firm. Uh, before that, I worked at a big civil firm doing family law and some civil appeals at Cooper Scully, an excellent firm from 02 to 06. And then really from 96 to 02, I worked with a, a family lawyer, uh, Robert Holmes, who was also another boutique family law firm. Additionally, I uh, was on the Irving City Council for two three-year terms from 2012 to 2018. Uh, and then I finally just stopped running, but it was far north Irving. And uh, I served on a variety of committees. I was deputy mayor pro tem, mayor pro tem in 16 and 17. I'm admitted to the U.S. Supreme Court, many of the federal courts of appeals and federal district courts, everyone in Texas. Uh, I'm a fellow in the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. I've been 
super lawyers, best of this and that <laughs> from time to time. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of, though, was that I received an award of merit from the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children in 2005 based on a Fifth Circuit federal appeal I did out of New Orleans in a uh, parental kidnapping case. I'm uh, also in the Texas Academy of Family Law Specialists and uh, uh, very active in the Knights of Columbus as well. Um, I've handled many appeals, uh, published many articles. It's all in the fine print on my CV, but uh, that's, that's a little bit or a lot of bit about me. So I'm intrigued about the federal component of your appellate practice because I think of family law as a state issue. And if it ever was going to the Supreme Court, it'd be the United States Supreme Court. So how did you end up in a federal Fifth Circuit case with a family law issue? They're very unusual. The federal courts are not always excited to see us family lawyers, but I've had two federal appeals uh, out of family law cases now. Both of them involve international kidnapping allegations. Uh, under the Hague Convention on International Child Abduction. So under the Hague, if a child is wrongfully removed from his or her habitual residence or wrongfully retained in a country, and assuming you can, you can go prove that, you have the choice to either file that case in state or federal court. There is some thinking that maybe it's better to file in federal court because it'll become it's not supposed to be a custody case. It's literally where was their habitual residence and were they wrongfully removed? And of course there's defenses and other factors, but it's the, the thinking, the logical thinking is if you file in federal court, a judge is more likely to just very strictly adhere to that law. And so if someone loses, then it would go to the federal fifth circuit in our case, Texas leads to the court of appeals in New Orleans. So I've had Two of those, the first one was called Sealed versus Sealed. We ended up winning that one and getting a child returned to Australia. And, uh, it was obviously very gratifying. We had oral argument in, uh, the, in the Fifth Circuit. And uh, then the last one we had was very interesting. It was a case out of Argentina. And it, it made some new law because the U.S. Supreme Court had recently ruled in a case called Manaski, it was one of Justice Ginsburg's last opinions uh, about this Hague Convention and the wife had argued in that case, well, we need to have a written agreement to which country we're gonna live in. And the Supreme Court rejected that idea. It said it's based more on a totality and you don't necessarily need a written agreement. And so our case followed up on that. Our case involved two expats who had moved to Argentina were actually divorced in Argentina. And uh, the Court of Appeals really struggled with that. They declined to return the child, but it was a very interesting opinion if anyone's interested about the relationship of expats going to other countries and then coming back to the United States. In this case, it was Texas. So um, that one was an interesting case. Very interesting. So how would you describe your current practice? Well, you did a great job of it earlier, but pretty much what I do now is full service family law. So I'm selective about appeals. I, I really want good appeals or something where I think we have a reasonable shot. 
I think that's important. Uh, I do a lot of family law trial work across the board, custody cases, property. Obviously, I, I love property cases. Anything I think that's really weird, by the way. <laughs> I love property. I love working with forensic experts on property cases, valuing businesses, tracing separate property. Um, I love the nuances of venue and jurisdiction with regard to any kind of a case. So those tend to be mostly child-related cases. Obviously, I have what I call legal issues practice. So like the case we had, there was a big standing issue on, can this person even file this case? If so, do they, how does the constitution interact with that? So I do a fair amount of consulting with other lawyers or co-counseling on cases. And then I get hired to quite a few of those anywhere where there's a legal issue involving summary judgment and briefing. I love those. As you mentioned, drafting lots of marital agreements or litigating those agreements. And then to me, one item that's definitely on the rise is, is what we just discussed. These international custody cases to me are becoming way more common. They're very interesting. They're difficult cases. Do you fit the standard? Do you fit a defense to this international treaty? Is the other country even a signatory to this treaty? If it's not, there's still other remedies. So I handle a fair amount of those kind of cases. And then, as you mentioned, quite a few appeals. We'll probably talk about this in a second, but mandamuses, writs of habeas corpus, those sorts of things are very interesting in family law cases as well. So we are here today to primarily talk about appellate issues. And, you know, before I started doing more appellate work, I thought you know, appeals are super rare in family law because especially with modification issues, somebody can turn around and modify quicker than they can appeal their ruling. But there are definitely certain types of cases where an appeal is appropriate, like, or, um, or a mandamus. So let's first talk about appeals versus mandamus and kind of when you would use one versus when you would use the other. Well, generally, you can only appeal in a case. An appeal happens at the very end. So if you're spotting errors along the way and doing what you need to do, with regard to those errors, you appeal when the judge issues a final judgment. However, with that said, there's other kind of appeals. One of them is called a mandamus, and it's significantly more work because as you know, you have to create your own record and it's normally the clerk and the reporter would do these things for you. So you assemble all this, you redact it, but it's what I really call an emergency appeal during the middle of a case. And what's extraordinary about family law cases is you cannot appeal a temporary order. And many times, as you know, you have a sort of a mini trial right at the beginning or in the middle of a case that involves a temporary order that says what is gonna happen in the family law case. And by law, those cannot be appealed. This is an absolute prohibition. So the only thing you can do, and the law is very clear about this for way longer than I've been practicing that you would mandamus a temporary order if the judge abuses their discretion. So with regard to temporary orders, even in modifications, if you think about this, there are some bars on a judge modifying something by a temporary order, unless there are certain emergencies are, are in place. So 
family law cases are very ripe for mandamuses, especially in the context of modifications, in my opinion. And then, as I talked about earlier, there's another thing called a writ of habeas corpus. So if a client or the other side is held in contempt, and this gets very complicated procedurally uh, to go to the jail and go get all those documents, but there is a way to have an immediate addressing of whether your client should be in jail or not. And that, that's a very ripe area because putting someone in jail is very technical. And many times those technical requirements are not met in a family case. So there's definitely avenues literally in the middle of a case to go to the court of appeals. And as you know, in CJC, this happened in some context, and I've certainly had it happen in others, all is not lost because there is a way sometimes to stay the trial court's orders while the mandamus or emergency is going on. Yeah, in CJC, we were able to get a stay from the Supreme Court of the underlying temporary order, which gave rights and possession to a non-parent. And we were making constitutional arguments in that particular case. When you're dealing with two parents or maybe a case without the constitutional issues that we had in CJC, do you see appellate courts granting stays very often? Definitely not. Um, much more often, even if a mandamus is gonna be granted, a stay will not be granted. The courts of appeals, typically with stays are looking at something like you said, where it's further out there, or is there a discovery deadline that you're gonna produce the secret to Coca-Cola? Um, they're gonna stay things like that. If there's something that's readily apparent that's gonna happen that would jeopardize rights. So it, it's fleeting, it's rare, and many times you'll choose not to ask for a stay just up front because if you think you're not gonna get it, it may hurt your chances for a review. So you may wanna give them a little bit more time because when you file a mandamus with a stay, especially at the Supreme Court level, but really all levels, like literally they ring a bell, they have to drop what they're doing and come look at your stuff. So it better be good. Um, you know, and so they give it a much quicker look, but it's not as good of a look, I would say. So that's always a strategic decision. Are you going to so seek a stay? So the CJC case actually had two mandamuses. First one we did was in Ray Clay, which was the first mandamus that I ever did. And that was the first time that we worked together. And then obviously we had CJC that went to the Supreme Court. And I, I know I got a little bit spoiled by courts taking our mandamuses in both of those cases. So can you talk a little bit about just how hard it is to get a court to give you an opinion in a mandamus and what your odds are of success? Yeah, it's it's extremely difficult. The way I normally describe it, you're running up Mount Everest without oxygen. Like it's, you're probably not going to get there. Um, now, with that said, I've had some ability of success in mandamuses and it's, that's really issue spotting. Clay was an excellent mandamus because you're talking about standing, which is an issue that the Supreme Court has been interested in, A. And B, it's it's very important, constitutional rights of parents. I've had a lot of success in getting UCCJEA mandamuses granted, particularly at the Supreme Court level, in Ray Dean, in Ray Forlenza, were two cases involving interpretation of when does a case leave the state of Texas if somebody moves? 
and the court was very interested in that and, and spoke on those UCCJEA is the interstate custody statute really first came into effect back in those days. So they were willing to speak on it. But with that said, your chance of success, in my opinion, in a family law mandamus, your average is less than 5%. Some of those I would say are a higher percentage if it's a pure legal issue or if you've got an interesting issue. However, with that said, I, I, I'm not gonna count or promise you, but I think I've had more mandamuses granted at the Supreme Court level than at the Court of Appeals. Like the Court of Appeals is very busy. They have thousands of cases to get through. You have panels that handle mandamuses each month. And in my experience, they typically tend not to be interested in family law cases. So even if it's a good issue. So I have had one recently where, and it's actually currently up at the Texas Supreme Court at this point, but in Dallas Court of Appeals, Without requesting a response, they gave us a majority and a dissent opinion. Is that something that happens very often? That is super unusual. Um, Dallas Court of Appeals composition has changed. So we're, you know, we'll have to wait and see how they handle things. But normally for them to issue a real opinion, you're going to at least have to have a response requested. Um, the court will not grant relief until a response is requested. So, but I don't recall seeing many opinions without a response granted. And then, you know, it's, you do all this work, even if a response is granted, and sometimes they send you a one or two, two line or denied. So, you know, that's always disappointing, but it's, it's part of, you know, what your expectation is, but it, it is unusual they would issue an opinion. I think that bodes a little bit better. Whenever you get a dissent or you get any kind of opinion from the Court of Appeals, it bodes more well for your review of the Supreme Court. So one of the things that I know you and I had talked about a lot during CJC was kind of how your odds go up of success once you get across each hurdle. So, you know, if we're at 5% when you file, how much of a bump are you getting if the court requests a response? Well, for an appeal, let's just say appeals for a second. Um, your odds of reversal on filed cases is one in 10, basically. They did a study a few years ago. When you get a, a response requested, so at the Supreme Court, it's a multiple layer process. Unlike the Court of Appeals, you just file your big long brief and you're done. You have a set of mini briefs and the, the Supreme Court has to request a response for it to go anywhere. And they describe it as the conveyor belt system. So if not, nobody pulls it off, you fall off and you just get automatically denied. So the first step is for one judge to pull it off. And then your odds are probably up to 20%. And then if you get through that round of mini briefing and they're still interested, they'll request what's called briefs on the merits. And that takes three judges to pull it off that conveyor. So you'll have three justices who are interested in full briefs, at least, and your chances are up to about 33%, according to this study. And if you get through full briefs and they're still interested, you have to have four justices out of the nine who want to grant your petition, whether that's a mandamus or whether that's in an appeal. And if you got a granted petition, I think your chances are up to 70 something percent of rever reversal. So you're feeling good. 
you're not home free. And you're really probably more than four justices if you think about it, because at that point, it's probably not just going to be four to grant your petition because you'll still lose if there's five going the other way. So it's a serious question at that point. And you're, you know, you're feeling very good and you're, you're probably getting oral argument like we did in CJC, you know, but two of my other mandamus is at the Texas Supreme Court level, no argument. You just got a procuring opinion in our favor, a 9-0 opinion that wasn't authorized by anybody. But as you jump these hurdles in the Supreme Court process, your chances get better and better. Mandamus says I would give you a lower percent on each one of those steps. So when comparing appeals and mandamus, I know there are a lot of issues, especially the CJC type issues that are constitutional, where abuse of discretion is the standard both on a mandamus and on an appeal. So are those treated differently or would, if it's the same type of issue, are your chances better on an appeal, even though the standard is the same? If they're better only slightly, I think abuse of discretion on the scheme of standard of review, it's the worst. You know, they give high deference to the trial court. We don't want to get interfere or get muddy in a family law case. Let's let the judge take care of that. To me, that's a bit of an oversight because a lot of the judges nowadays are basing their cases on docket management rather than, than necessarily giving it the look we used to get 20, 25 years ago. So to me, I, I would hope for an increasing look at those cases. And in many cases, we have a hybrid standard anyway when you're on appeal of, you are looking at sufficiency of the evidence, which is a more friendly standard with a lens also of abuse of discretion that it's a family law case. The issues that I love, I would argue CJC is standing. I would argue obviously a summary judgment if a judge says, well, I think they're separate property or not, that's de novo. So that's the other end of the spectrum. No deference to the trial judge. They look at it all over again. They look at the facts, they look at the law and they make their own decision. So if you're looking for a, a good appeal or a good mandamus, you're looking at more of a pure legal issue typically. So one of the things that I think a lot of family lawyers who don't do appellate law struggle with is how to properly preserve error during a trial or during a case in general. What are some tips you have for attorneys in that regard? That is a, a major challenge. Um, I would completely agree with you many times errors not preserved. So there's a couple weird principles of appellate law that the, the court of appeals is trying to hit the easy button. They're trying to get rid of your case. So don't let them hit the easy button if you can avoid it. And what I, my tip is, if there are four or five big issues that are important to your client, focus on those and preserve error on those. There's one, one principle of appellate law is that says you're not entitled to a perfect trial. So literally the judge, the trial judge can make errors and they've gotta be proven to be harmless. And so if you're talking about the context of a property division, you're really gonna to wanna to illuminate why the judge mischaracterizing something is harmful. Or hey, if they awarded it to your client anyway, what does the rest of the division look like and get the percentage? very clear so that the Court of Appeals can evaluate it. 
preserving error, you know, we all learn this in law school and then we, we forget it from time to time, but it is objecting or presenting your evidence at the right point in a timely manner right then in securing a ruling from the judge. And that's the challenge because some judges will be pushing you not to do that. Some judges will be pushing you move along, you know, so that's why I say pick your battles. You, you know what the important battles are and make sure you're preserving error. And one of the key things I see missing is if a judge excludes a key piece of evidence, rarely are evidentiary errors gonna overturn a judgment because it literally, the judgment has to turn on that piece. With that said, there's appellate cases that do overturn those sort of judgments. So if you get evidence excluded, make sure it's included as an excluded exhibit in the record. Or two, if the judge strikes your expert and you think that's wrong, or if a judge says, this is not relevant, I'm not hearing from the witness on this topic, make an offer of proof, get that in the record as to what you would have presented. If you don't put it in the record as to what you would have presented, it will never be reversed. Even if you say, well, hey, I wanted them to testify on the other side's pornography, obsession in a child custody case, or hey, I was trying to put on my tracing and the judge excluded it and wouldn't let my expert talk about this. Make sure you make an offer of proof taken by the court reporter with the excluded exhibits that go with the record. And literally, the cases say the judge could even leave the room, just make sure you put on your evidence, if that's a key issue. So let's say a judge excludes an expert prior to trial. And at that time, you didn't make an offer of proof. The judge just decided this expert is excluded. Do you come back at the time of trial and make an offer of proof? Or did you miss your chance by not doing it right then at the hearing on the motion to exclude? I don't think you probably missed your chance. I don't think it's probably too late to do a deposition of your expert and then just put that in before trial. Just say, hey, here's what we would have offered judge. We're asking for reconsideration on what would have been the expert challenge, a Dalbert or Robinson challenge, whatever you want to call it, or if they were designated late or something like that, then I, I don't think you have to offer all that at the exclusion hearing. I think it's wise to do that. If you know you've got a chance your expert's going to be excluded, load up. Now, that's kind of funny because I had two cases where Many, many years ago, the judges were going to exclude what I had to offer. And so they're like, we'll put on your offer of proof. So I put on the witness and they're like, you know, I like this. I'm going to, I'm actually going to allow it into evidence. So sometimes that could be rather convincing to them that they, they think, okay, maybe I shouldn't exclude this expert. I think they've demonstrated the nexus of what their testimony is going to be. And I'm going to, to consider it. And that's underrated too. You know, sometimes the judge will go, well, I, I do think this is relevant and I am going to let it in. So one of the mistakes, I don't know if it's a mistake, but one of the issues I see attorneys dealing with is judges who get annoyed when you continue objecting or they've already made their, the judge has already made it clear that you're not going to get this in and attorneys kind of give up on their objecting because they don't want to annoy the judge or have that held against their client. What do you do in that situation? Again, I, I, you have to weigh, is this a critical issue or not? Um, I totally agree with you. I see that all the time 
if it's an important issue to me, I'll just be a pest about it. You know, it's, you know, if the judge won't even let you make an offer of proof, you can come back with, there's all kinds of weird procedures to come back with bystanders bills, this sort of stuff. That's not easy necessarily, but I think that you need to be an advocate. I think that you need to stand up for your client and on the important issues to advocate. And I feel more comfortable doing that as I've got a few more gray hairs uh, over my over my years. But I think that judges will respect you for for on the important issues, and that you know they may not like it. But I think that it's important, especially if it's on a critical issue, to preserve the trial. The, the client's case. So you mentioned, you know, judge not letting you make an offer of proof. If you request to make one and the judge will not let you, because they say, for example, it's not relevant, then is that an abuse of discretion that's subject to having the, everything overturned if you weren't a the judge did not allow you to make that offer offer of proof? Yeah. So that goes back to the evidentiary standard. Again, a very difficult part of an appeal, but if there was a key piece or a key witness, whether it was wrongfully admitted or wrongfully excluded, that can overturn a case. So, you know, you can pursue the bystander bills route and you have to go get somebody out of the hallway and put on your evidence to them what it would be. It's sort of ridiculous. And then you recreate it um, with modern technology. I think there are easier ways to do that. If you're in the middle of a trial, maybe you'll go do sworn statements and then get a bystander to sign off that this is what you would have introduced. That is very, very rare, though. Most trial judges are going to let you do what you need to do, and you know, then they let the chips fall where they may. But there, there is a way to do that. It's, it's not fun or easy, but there's a way to put stuff in. But, so, yeah, it's, it's that same. To me, if they're not even letting you enter a record, it's going to probably even help your appeal on that standard of like, okay, they wouldn't even let me do this. So one of the new issues that we're all dealing with is, is the new disclosure requirements in the rules. And people are probably coming up pretty soon on their first trials under the new discovery rules. And one of the issues we've been looking at is how do you, let's say somebody does not make their pretrial disclosures as required how to properly object to that in the trial court to preserve that issue for appeal. Oh, there's a host of issues with the new rules and how they apply to family cases. When are your experts really due? Some people take the position I do that you, if I've got an expert 30 days in from the answer, I've got to disclose them. Some say, no, no, you can wait till the 90 days before trial, 90 days before the end of the discovery period, in cases in Collin County, I'm getting set within four months. It's literally impossible for me to designate experts in time. So how are judges gonna deal with that? But, uh, and then the, the 30 days you're talking about is like your, your exhibits and witnesses are literally due in a family law case, 30 days before trial, which drastically increases the costs in family law cases because we do, we're normally trying to do more of that at the end as settlement really hypes up. So it gets real for people when trial is a couple weeks away. It's not real when it's 60 days away. Um, I think that we look back to the old case law on how you objected to failure to de designate things. So 
there's two two theories of thought on that. Number one, if it's Holly, and they you know you're not you're not getting the witness list or the exhibits at day 29 before trial, you file an objection. All this should be excluded. You put them on notice. It gives them an opportunity to cure. You still object anyway. The other theory of thought is you're entitled for people to go by the rules. You have that expectation. You walk into trial and say, you know, they didn't have a witness list. They didn't produce their exhibits. They just got them to me. I didn't prepare for that. So you should exclude everything. That's harsh. Um, the family cases in the past tend to, especially if it's a custody case, let people present their case anyway. I don't know what I'm going to do when that comes up. Um, I probably will just file an objection because the courts are probably going to be lenient on them. And so I'd rather have that material sooner rather than later. You know, then if then if they don't produce, you put them on notice. So that's one line of cases. The other line says you can just rely on the rules and object. So you filed an objection and they still didn't produce anything. Let's say it's a pro se party or or whatever, somebody whose <laughs> client doesn't cooperate to get them information, then do you still need to object again at the trial? Yeah, I sure would if they're going to try to introduce anything. And that would be part of my opening housekeeping is, you know, judge, you ordered this. It's part of the rules. You ordered it. They still didn't do it. So they're limited. And I, I want to just put that on the record right now. They shouldn't be able to introduce anything that they're going to try to do. So then the judge says, denied, I'm going to let him do it. Do you then, for purposes of preserving error, need to object to every witness that gets up there and every exhibit they're trying to introduce? I would because the standard is a timely objection and you, know, you can even waive objections you previously made. It's pretty annoying. And then the judge may just say, well, you know, running objections are generally not good to preserve error, by the way. So I don't like running objections. They're running nowhere when it comes to your appeal. So, you know, I, I would just stand and, and, you know, you might abbreviate your objection, um, but at least plainly make that. And then if there's a particularly, like, let's say it wasn't ever producing discovery, it comes as in an exhibit, they were hiding behind the ball or hiding behind the, the log here, and they launched something just crazy on you then I would also make that a longer objection on why that piece of evidence is prejudicial. We could have gone, gone and gotten counter evidence uh, to this. We're obviously not prepared for that. It's trial by ambush, particularly the more important pieces that you're spotting. If it's a pay stub, maybe make your objection and then, you know, just go with it. But if it's something critical on like, oh, here are all the bottles of alcohol around your client. And it's like, some cheap look at it that you could, you know, you could have gone and gotten an alcohol test to show your clients not drinking. You could have gone and, and shown what that was really about. So I think that in that I would elaborate more. So one more issue we wanted to touch on today are appellate deadlines and things that attorney trial attorneys need to be aware of when an appeal is an issue. So can you speak to that a little bit? I could a lot, but I, I won't go that long, I promise. I've written a whole paper on this, particularly with a family law perspective. If you know the case is going into appeal, you need to kind of start putting on both hats, your trial and appellate hat, or you know, get somebody to help you with the appellate stuff if you don't want to do that. 
literally in the old days, and it's been cleaned up a little bit, but it's still dangerous. Like literally, there were some family law fact findings with regard to property, with regard to varying from a standard possession order, with regard to varying from child support guidelines that you had to request at the hearing. How do you know? How do you know that the judge is going to do any of that? So in theory, you could just put that in a pretrial pleading that, hey, if you do any of these things, I want specific findings on them. Those get waived all the time, and they're very, very handy tools to make the judge go do. But generally speaking, your all your deadlines are going to run from when the trial court signs the judgment. There's cases out there that held a memorandum or a rendition or ruling or a final judgment. So if you have anything that even looks like a final judgment, you might as well start requesting things. You're generally speaking, other than your family law specific findings, findings affecting conclusions of law are due within 20 days of the judgment. And in theory, they can extend the deadline to file your notice of appeal from 30 days to 90 days, only if findings are required. They're not required when you have a summary judgment. They're not required with a jury verdict. They're not required in certain types of cases. So be careful in just filing a findings and thinking that's extending your notice of appeal. Notice of appeal isn't due at 30 days unless you file a motion to change the judgment, commonly a motion for new trial, but it's really any motion under 329B, modify, reform, correct, asking for a change will extend that notice of appeal from 30 to 90. So when in doubt, file your notice of appeal in 30 days. And typically, if you really want to appeal, file a motion for new trial within 30 days. If you file your motion for new trial outside of 30 days, or if you amend it, the judge can completely ignore it. It's really a jurisdictional thing. The judge could look at it, could take mercy on you and grant something, an amendment filed outside that time. But if you don't file that timely, anything timely within the 30 days, plenary power expires. The judgment is final. If you file something that extends it like the motion for new trial, then a motion for new trial is overruled at 75 days by operation of law. So if the judge does nothing, it's just overruled. And then there, you have 30 more days to day 105 for the judge to sign an order vacating the old order. If the judge just even rules during plenary power but doesn't sign an order getting rid of the final order, you're stuck with it. Now here's a common secret that people forget. At 30 days is when your notice of appeal is due, but you have 15 more days to request an extension. And I highly recommend if you get beyond that 30 or beyond that 90 and someone wants to appeal, don't just tell them they're dead in the water. They've got a 15-day extension and in all likelihood, it's going to be granted. So I don't recommend going over the deadline, but really think of day 45, or day 105, if you extended the appellate deadlines, is your real deadline to file a notice of appeal. Don't risk it, but also don't tell the client they're done. I've been really surprised with how lenient some of the appellate courts seem when it comes to deadlines. Uh, we have an appeal pending right now where the other side didn't file a brief by the deadline. 
uh, and the appellate court said, we haven't received a brief or an, a request for extension. So we're gonna give you 14 days to file a request for an extension. And I thought, what what point are deadlines if people don't have to meet them? But I guess if you missed one, they're, you're really glad they're lenient. They're, they're very lenient on briefing deadlines. They're very lenient on the court reporter and clerk for getting those records in. So those typically are 30 days after the notice of appeal is due. The clerks, the reporter have to send up the record. Now you have to request it. You really want to do that by the time you file a notice of appeal. If you do not file the notice of appeal in time with an extension, or if jurisdictionally it's not a final judgment, they are not lenient about those things. They, they really look hard at that because they don't have jurisdiction to hear it. But everything within is very lenient, as you point out, you know, almost, especially with pro se's, almost maddeningly lenient. They just don't want to dismiss them. So one thing that we've kind of learned as we've built our appellate practice is really checking those deadlines before we file anything, because mm -hmm. especially if we're looking at possibly temporary orders pending appeal, the deadline to those More have deadlines. to be requested before you file your notice of appeal. And I think a lot of attorneys miss that and they assume once I file a notice of appeal, then it's appropriate to request temporary orders pending appeal. Very big problem, very awkward rules. It used to be even worse. Um, you literally have to have a temporary order rendered within that 60-day statutory deadline. If you know the other side's going to appeal, there's some argument, there's a lot of nuances to that statute on if they appeal and you don't within the time, you may lose your hearing altogether. So if you know they're gonna go to appeal, just file a request for temporary orders on appeal, and then you've done your request in time, and then you've preserved your rights. But you're, you're absolutely right. If, if you want fees, appellate fees, and you forgot to get them in the final judgment, or if you want a further temporary order, just file it, even if they don't appeal. So you mentioned requesting fees for the appeal. So that is something that you do at a hearing on temporary orders pending appeal and get the trial judge to award? So you could do either. Trial lawyers always drastically underestimate what an appeal costs. So frequently the judgment people get uh, for a, a successful or not successful appeal, uh, you know, in the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court is too little. A, or they don't do it at all, B, and C, I don't know what appeal the other side's gonna file. Is it 10 issues and it's the whole transcript? Is it one small issue that's gonna be easy to brief and you know look through the record and get all your fact sites? So in that case, you can go to back to your trial court and get interim fees on appeal, you have a hearing, and then you can even get an open-ended order where they just re-up your retainers, whatever it is it is. If one side has a lot of money or they're trying to outspend the other side and make them suffer more, you literally can get those fees on appeal without even being successful, which is different from the judgment you might get at the time of trial. So that's a very handy tool. I would say it's rarely used. And so I can't tell you that that's granted often, but if I have a client who's doesn't didn't have all the separate property, was a, a parent, and they've got the kids, and the other side's appealing it, and we don't have any money to try it because there wasn't much money to divide, I would highly anticipate a trial court giving you interim fees. 
but as you said, it's tricky, you know, so to make sure as soon as the final judgment comes down and they're sniffing around appeal or fact findings, just request your hearing and go get it heard immediately and get an order. Okay, so we're just about out of time, but one of the questions I like to ask all of my guests is if you could give advice to young family lawyers, what would it be? Well, I'm a throwback, so I'm gonna admit that first, but especially for young appellate lawyers, don't stop reading and writing. Like read fiction, read nonfiction. Legal writing typically is terrible. It's not good for your brain. It's not great reading. And you will become a much better appellate brief writer if you read novels, if you read how to tell a story, if you're clear and concise and like try to try to help the court of appeals. They don't like legalese. They don't like a 50-page brief that repeats itself. So try to keep sharp on your reading and writing. The more you read, the better writer you become. And so I highly recommend that. And then number two is as young lawyers, it's easier now than ever to differentiate yourselves from your peers. I'll put on my rose colored glasses. Back in the day, we all worked a gazillion hours. You had to work hard. We were here more than the partners. If you're working hard, you're gonna, A, you're going to be years beyond your peers and experience. You're gonna advance yourself, you're gonna be profitable, which firms always like, and, and you're going to become a better lawyer. Um, and you, you don't wanna do it when you get older, trust me, like you're, you're not gonna to wanna to work those long, long hours. As you get married, as you have kids, as you get older and have health problems or whatever, or you're, you're pursuing other interests and you're, you've got enough money to travel, do that when you're you're young. Get get your experience in, and you will become very valuable to law firms. And I would add to that: find yourself a mentor like Brad, because he has really helped change the trajectory of my career. And you know, I didn't know him when Inray Clay and CJC came along, but I'd been told he was one of the family law appellate lawyers that I should reach out to, and. I picked up the phone, called him and formed that relationship. And now to this day, I'll still, if I have an appellate issue or a unique legal issue, I'll call Brad and I'll ask him what he thinks of it. And those types of relationships are really invaluable in growing your knowledge, growing your practice. And even, you know, I've been practicing not quite as long as Brad, but for a while. And you don't, there's so many things out there you don't know. And so having somebody to bounce ideas off of and to help you realize where you should be going with something is really valuable. Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, I'm by force. I think I've, I've had many mentors. I would call lots of judges, lots of other lawyers who I had had a case with and just ask them. And, and most people are very generous. I also think like even as you graduate from mentors, you have colleagues who are stronger in areas than you. And as you know, as you get older, you get more comfortable in saying, I don't know. And so you pick up the phone and I, I think it's, I love doing it. I think it's good for, for all of us. It makes our practices stronger. And I, I definitely think as a young lawyer, that's harder to do. You think, you know, it all, you, you don't want to be afraid to ask, you know, you want to be afraid to ask a question or something, but I, I totally agree with you. 
So where can our listeners go to learn more about you? Probably the best place is the website. So it's ondafamilylaw.com, O-N-D-A familylaw.com. There's a lot on there. I'm pretty active on my LinkedIn page. Um, I try to post frequently just about fun stuff or family law stuff. I'm on, obviously, like all of us on Facebook and uh, Twitter, Instagram. Twitter and Instagram, I don't do much on there, uh, but definitely Facebook. Um, I have a lot of blog entries on the website, so I write still pretty frequently. Um, I wrote an article for Headnotes, the Dallas Bar. I write for Texas Lawyer. All that should be in in uh, on my website links, but I'll, occasionally I'll do web series on um, different topics. I did some on appellate. I did some on high net worth. My next promise is probably at least a 10-part series on this international custody stuff because it's so interesting and I think a lot of people don't know about it. So I'll be doing that coming up. Well, I will definitely watch for it because that is one area I know little to nothing about. So I'll be looking forward to that. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, For our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to leave us a review and subscribe so you can enjoy future episodes. Thank you. The Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.